I'm Haley Ryan. My thing really kind of has become classical reception, the study of the role of antiquity in the modern world. And I love that you gain a new understanding of the modern world when you look at the ancient world. And to some degree, I think you understand the ancient world looking at the modern world, too. It, it works both ways. My name is Allison Sugino. I think what I enjoy most is looking at what we can glean from those narratives we have from antiquity about what society was like, because narrative does serve such a purpose of constructing, and it is also constructed by the society that creates them. My name is Jonathan Chung. As someone who also studies sociology and thinks about people and interactions, it's very useful and almost more interesting to be thinking about classics as informing today, society today, people today. Um, I'm Michael Osterhout. For my thesis, I wrote a um, I wrote a full length original musical uh, that was um, entitled Ariadne. It basically gives the story of the myth of Theseus and the Minotaur, a modern update, and focuses on Ariadne as a college student um, going out and sort of experiencing herself in the world for the first time. I'm Jordy. I'm a senior Greek and Roman studies major at Vassar College. I don't know if like necessarily like all Latin literature is that high and dignified. I kind of read Ovid as just like an extreme version of his predecessors. But like it's like they're like he's just kind of a troll, a really talented troll, <laughs> but still a troll. This is the Mirror of Antiquity. I'm Curtis Dozier. Today on the show, we're going to do something a little bit different. You're going to hear from five classical scholars who graduated last spring from Vassar College, where I teach, with degrees in Greek and Roman studies. I've taught all of them in at least one class, but really they're the products of all our faculty and the curriculum we've designed, which asks students how the study of the ancient world can inform their understanding of the contemporary world and their own lives. If that sounds like what the Mirror of Antiquity is about, it should. Really, this show itself is the result of my experience teaching in that curriculum as well. First up, we have Alison Sugino talking about the ancient Roman story of the rape of Lucretia and what it helps us notice about the way we talk about rape in the contemporary world. Well, most recently in my thesis, I was looking at how rape narratives sort of reflect power hierarchies in our modern day and how they sort of serve to perpetuate and to generate those power hierarchies between how we talk about rape victims as either victims of violence or not victims of violence is something that's really intrigued me. In the rape of Lucretia, Rome at the time is being ruled by these Etruscan monarchs who aren't from Rome and who got power in a sort of questionable way. So Lucretia is the wife of a Roman soldier who's at war and one day the soldiers get into an argument about who has the best wife. And the Roman soldier, Colatinus, whose wife is Lucretia, is like, oh, let's just go see what our wives are up to, because we have nothing better to do in this war. Um, so they ride out to Rome, and they check out what's happening, and all the other wives are out partying as well, like the husbands were. But Lucretia is at home, spinning industriously with her female slaves. So Colatinus wins. And in that moment, one of the princes, Sextus Tarquins, decides to rape this, like, the purest Roman matron to ever exist, Lucretia. The true tragedy of Lucretia is, afterwards, despite everyone saying you were forced to do this and essentially saying you were raped, in fact, um, that she's forced to kill herself because in Rome, if someone had been raped, the only way for a woman to remain virtuous was to be dead. After her death, um, one of the family friends, Brutus, who was 
no relation to Lucretia at all, um, takes the knife out of her body, like it's still dripping with blood, and vows to pursue um, the monarch at the time and his entire lineage to the grave with whatever strength he can muster. So he drags her body out into the forum, and all the men of Colatia are there, and they're like, oh God, what happened? And they each complain about what the monarchy's done to them individually. And then Brutus is like, we have to take action. We have to do something about this. So he leads a coup d'etat against the monarchy that goes to Rome. And he rallies the men of Rome as well with the image of this violated matron. Brutus then instates the Roman Republic and peace is restored. And the sort of violation of Rome at the hands of these monarchs is what Lucretia comes to symbolize. So she has to be the most virtuous and the most chaste and the most everything in order to amplify that. Lucretia has to be the sort of virtuous paragon in order to vilify the monarchy. She's sort of the epitome of everything that should have been safe and secure and okay. Wives were supposed to be protected at home and safe from harm, but yet despite being sort of the best wife to ever exist, Lucretia is still attacked and murdered and something has allowed this to happen and that something is that the power relations in Rome are off. They have this sort of foreign tyrant in control who's led them in this war, which has been so stalemated that they've had time to do things like argue who has the best wife. Um, and what Brutus ends up doing is using this as sort of a very tangible example of the royal wrongs that the Roman men will say the monarchy has done to them. In a minute, we'll hear from Allison about modern examples of rape narratives. But first, let's hear from Jonathan Chung, who is also interested in public narratives. In this case, the narratives that politicians tell about themselves. He's studying the rhetoric of Grace Meng, the first Asian American to represent New York State in the US Congress. In her public speeches, she promotes herself as a child of immigrants who worked hard for her success. And it's all true. But Jonathan recognized in this narrative an appeal to a troubling stereotype, that of the model minority. It's the belief that some demographic groups, such as Asian Americans like Grace Meng, are more successful than the average person in the overall population. Jonathan thinks that when Congresswoman Meng plays into that stereotype, she runs the risk of disguising the fact that the kind of success she's enjoyed is not available to all Asian Americans due to various forms of structural inequality and discrimination. It's a perspective he came to from his work in Vassar's sociology department and our Asian studies program. But his analysis of Meng's deployment of that myth relies on his study of the theories of persuasion found in ancient Greek rhetoricians like Alcidamus and Gorgias. This semester I'm taking the Greek rhetoric class. Like what we're learning in the class is being aware of the nuances of what language can do. What I'm looking at right now is how Asian Americans and specifically my congressional representative, Grace Meng, like I'm looking at her speeches and I'm looking at her story as a representation of her ability to use Greek rhetoric to have succeeded in like American politics. And looking, specifically what I'm doing now is looking at the rhetoric of what she's doing and how she's persuading and campaigning for herself. I'm looking at specifically what does she say? How does this one sentence does she say compare to what I'm reading right now in Alcidamus? And just noting the parts where he says it's important to cater your speech to your audience using 
the right language, using the right diction, being able to speak according to who your constituents are. And that's something that, as a congressional representative, Grace Meng has to do as someone who's representing a lot of immigrants and minorities in her congressional district. It's something that I've been able to notice a lot in her speeches, how she always focuses on these aspects of her identity and her career. Like, I've made it. I'm an Asian-American, third-generation, Taiwanese-American. I support, like, the immigrant community here and things like that. And it's just really, like, there's a lot of rhetoric embedded into what she says that makes it persuasive and, in a way, convincing. When we read Gorgias, his encomium on Helen, we talked a lot about virtue and, you know, what makes a good person. And his defense on Helen was all about what makes her a good person or also, like, what makes her not a bad person. And so when I hear Grace Meng talking in the news about, you know, dispelling myths of Asian Americans, I see a lot of that same language being used of trying to convince a general people about why a group shouldn't be discriminated against and why they deserve to be represented in politics. But in a sociological perspective, I'm trying to prove something along the lines of a rhetoric of the model minority. So Asian Americans as being understood to be this stereotype of a model minority. The whole myth is based upon you know, the idea that a minority group has been able to surpass their disadvantages as a minority in America. It serves her well because she is a third generation, her father was an assemblyman, and using that rhetoric, she's able to tell her story in a way that paints an image of success. But I think that overall, it is still falling under the myth. There's still a great deal of the population and minorities within the Asian American community have not been able to surpass what the myth supposedly says about Asian Americans. Whether they're like refugees of war, or low income, or different circumstances that affect them, the resources aren't universally available for all Asian Americans. So whereas she focuses on the ability of certain groups of Asian Americans to succeed in the United States, it's not the overall truth. And this is where, you know, rhetoric is all about, you know, where is the divide between truth and persuasion. So she focuses on the good side and what success has been true for some, but it's just not the entire reality. It's something that I'm critiquing and that I'm noting, but there are also like there's the other side that needs to be considered, like her ability to rise in the ranks and make a career for herself as a as a marginalized person is still something that I'm recognizing totally and something that I'm still totally appreciative of. She's represented her community well, like something that that she's spearheaded is a movement to make Lunar New Year a nationally recognized holiday. She is constantly opposing, you know, bills that Trump is supporting so like travel ban on Muslims and different sanctions on countries like North Korea. She still is working to support the minorities and community that she does. So that can't be ignored. So like there is like the other side of the politics that 
needs to be recognized for what she's doing. But there's always just nuance. She, there is work that she's doing, but there's also, you know, the aspect that she is working under an assumption that all Asian Americans can do this and can succeed. I think that a lot of people still do want to work under the model minority myth because it does mean success and, you know, prospect of a better future for some. But I don't think she or many Asian Americans who have been able to, you know, reach successes in corporate America and American politics have been able to acknowledge the kind of the downsides of this myth. I think she still operates under the assumption and under the premise that this this myth of a minority can apply to everyone. The reality is that not every Asian American and not every minority group is able to, you know, pull themselves up by the bootstraps like she has and many others have. Grace Meng needs to win elections, so she needs to tell a certain kind of story about herself. She's lucky in that she has a platform that she can use to share her version of her story. But what happens when someone's story is told for them? This brings us back to Alison Sugino and what the rape of Lucretia can tell us about some of our own high-profile rape cases. Um, Well, for the contemporary narratives, I looked at the 1989 Central Park Jogger case in which a woman was found almost near death and raped in Central Park um, in the morning by a couple other people. And at first, they really didn't know what happened. Um, and they police, there were police reports of Black and Latino youths in the area who were just sort of out in the park because this was up by Harlem. Um, and they had no idea who did it, but still there's this media storm that happened. And these five teenagers, the youngest of which was 14 years old at the time, um, got charged with the crime of attacking this woman, even though there was inconsistent testimony, there was no DNA evidence, there was DNA on the scene, but it didn't match any of them. And there was like inconsistent um, confessions that went down. Um, But there's still this media frenzy that portrayed the woman who was white and affluent and a Wall Street banker as this like virtuous sort of paragon of virtue. And then these teenagers got completely vilified, which is very akin to what happened in the terms of Lucretia. They would find out in 2002 that who the real rapist was, who was a serial like murderer and rapist who was already in jail, but he had attacked lower class people in the past and it hadn't been this sort of high class Wall Street banker that was attacked in this case. Um, so those the Central Park Five, as they came to be known, the accused teenagers um, were there's a whole alternative trial about them accusing the state of doing them wrong because they had been accused falsely. Um, but this whole narrative arose despite reality that because this was a white woman and because the accused perpetrators were these black and Latino youths, um, that they must have done it regardless of the fact that that wasn't the case in terms of the teenagers. The other case I looked at was the 2015 Stanford rape case that happened while I was on campus, um, wherein a young woman was found unconscious under a dumpster with a man on top of her by two other students. And the students caught the guy at the scene and like what theoretically should have been an open and shut sort of case because there were witnesses. They had found the guy. She was completely unconscious at time of discovery. Ended up being this whole thing because the accused rapist was a white affluent male. 
that started to frame him as this all-American kind of guy. And like articles would list the horrific rape and then talk about his swimming times that were coming up. And there's this whole alternate narrative to the narrative of violence that had happened um, that this guy's life was going to be over because of this. And he's going to lose so much with no regard to the victim. Um, and what this sort of reflected was, again, the, that power dynamics were really what determined who was sympathetic in a rape narrative. It wasn't that violence had been done to somebody and that was wrong. It was violence shouldn't have been done to this person or violence um, could have been done by the perpetrator, like, validly. In looking at that, it was very similar to the ancient material in that it was that same sort of dichotomy of it depends on who was asserting power over whom, not that violence had been done to somebody. The issue is that some victims aren't allowed to be innocent of their own crime versus someone like Lucretia has to be innocent um, in order to perpetuate a certain narrative about power. Um, but not all victims are treated as innocents, which is not true objectively to what actually happens to them. Only some victims are allowed to be innocent to their own crime when in fact no victim has any blame for crimes that they did not do. And I really wanted to look at Stanford because of the letter that the victim wrote that was published in the media that had such a media frenzy around it. Um, because in that story, it sort of reclaims her humanity. It doesn't let the narrative continue to dehumanize her as an object who had like been done violence to, but like would be fine. It sort of reminded us that she too was human and she too was affected by this, even if her rapist was a white, affluent guy. These narratives tell us about our culture, about power, and how power is so constructed. Um, and that the way that a major part of how power is constructed is this sort of economy of compassion and empathy and sympathy and who can be cared about like a human being versus who is treated as just a casualty or an object in the world. What I've always taken away from this is that if these things are being constructed by narrative, the narrative can be changed. Um, that it doesn't have, it's not, nothing of this is naturalized. This isn't a biological characteristic. This is all has to be constructed by the stories we tell, and if it's just stories, those can be changed. The ancient comparison of narratives around rape highlights the way those narratives can take the focus off the woman and the violence they've experienced. Sometimes the men deserve to be vilified in these narratives, as in the case of Tarquin with Lucretia. But sometimes that vilification is unjust and reflects deeper prejudice as in the case with the Central Park Five. And sometimes the narrative becomes more about the man than the violence he's perpetrated, as with the Stanford case and Lucretia. In all cases, the women are forced to become rhetorical tools in a larger cultural narrative about power. Making women into a rhetorical tool is something Jordi Carrick has been thinking about a lot in her work on the Roman poet Ovid. Why does his poem, The Metamorphoses, contain so many scenes where gods and human men rape women? Why does he write a poem about hitting his girlfriend? And how are we to interpret his half-hearted regret about it in that poem? We tend to think about ancient literature as some of the best ever written, but maybe that's a narrative that needs changing. I don't know, like, I just think most of the things Ovid does is, is a joke. Kind of getting people to take you seriously when you're not being serious, just messing with people, like messing with their expectations, messing with things that they would be inclined to take seriously when you're coming at it from a perspective that's not serious at all. 
and maybe purposely inflammatory. Ovid writes about rape a lot, and he doesn't do it in a way that makes you feel bad for the rape victim, at least not really. When I read the story of Apollo and Daphne back in Intermediate, like, there's an argument to be made that Ovid is critiquing Augustus and critiquing, like, imperialist mindset. But in the process, he's not really, he's not critiquing rape. He's just using rape as a tool for exposing other things that he might be saying. The poem I worked on was about the like narrator like lamenting the fact that he lost his temper and hit his girlfriend. And he describes his girlfriend's messed up hair in in as like he compares her to Cassandra, but in like a way that's super inappropriate because most depictions of Cassandra we have her hair is actually covered. It's just like a wildly both maybe inappropriate and also inaccurate detail. He's not doing it for the sake of the women. Like, he's writing a poem where he's lamenting that, like, he hit his girlfriend, but he's not actually expressing remorse or even really criticizing violence against women or anything like that. Artists are so rarely the people we would want them to be based on the quality of the work that they're producing. It really bothers me when people just want to, like, ignore the fact that they were probably terrible people or, like, rescue them from that by, you know, arguing that Ovid was a proto-feminist. Like, we resolve our discomfort by trying to resolve issues that I think are just always going to be there. For example, modern example, Woody Allen. I know so many people who, like, love Woody Allen movies and are like, oh, but he's such a he's such a great artist, even though he's, like, a scumbag. Like, I think it's okay to watch a Woody Allen movie and be like, that was a good movie, if you know that, if you, like, acknowledge that the artist isn't anyone great and you come to a movie with, like, a critical eye for the things that might be imparted to it based on the fact that the artist isn't great. But if you're like, oh, Woody Allen couldn't be a scumbag because he's a good artist, that's, like, I think most of the time good artists are jerks, <laughs> more often than not. Like, you know, you could be like, why are you wasting your time consuming art made by people who are terrible? Go look at all this other art that's made by people who aren't terrible. But with Greek and Roman studies, our selection is a little bit limited. <laughs> There's not really anywhere to go except more jerks. And I ask myself probably at least once a week <laughs> is like, should I even be doing this? Is this a worthwhile use of my time? Is this an ethically sound use of my time? Like, when we went to the museum a couple weeks ago, I really liked the um curator who gave that tour but i was a little bit uncomfortable with how like rah rah rome he was <laughs> which is okay for someone who's you know like that's just who he is and like that's fine <laughs> but um i don't think that that's really an attitude that young up-and-coming scholars should have like i'm suspicious of anyone who's like rah rah rome it's just one example it's just like one ancient culture that you can study not the be-all end-all of ancient civilization. I think that you can't let yourself forget that you're studying something that could be ethically bad if you handle it wrong. One way that the study of classical antiquity has changed, for the better, over the past 40 years, which, by the way, is not a long time for a discipline with a continuous tradition of scholarship going back at least to the 4th century BCE, is the greater attention scholars have paid to people other than the elite men that ancient literature was, for the most part, written by and for. This expansion of our perspective has taken many forms, from analysis in archaeological laboratories of the bones from non-elite burials, to the study of graffiti composed by ordinary people. But literature itself, the celebrated texts from antiquity, has presented a particular challenge since the elite point of view that most of it takes for granted 
leave so much of human experience out. Haley Ryan found some ways to get around that limitation. You don't get women's voices when you study antiquity. And it's still interesting to think about, you know, what would the women have been thinking and, and what would have been going on that we don't see looking at texts written by, you know, wealthy elite men. I read the Odyssey in Greek and in English last semester. And then I read Emily Wilson's translation and seeing how, first how Emily Wilson kind of, she didn't reform, obviously, but like the way that she positioned women in the Odyssey and didn't shy away from calling them slaves and things like that, thinking about how it existed. And it was very multifaceted as opposed to like, you know, just one storyline. Um, and then I read Margaret Atwood's Penelopead. It's like a, a modern interpretation of the Odyssey from Penelope's point of view. You know, she definitely does have, have the cunning trait um, and the agency in terms of, you know, weaving the tapestry and undoing it at night and tricking the suitors that way. But she's also, you know, a lot of the time just kind of locked up in her bedroom and you don't really know what she's thinking. It's, it's more unclear to me, at least. Margaret Atwood gives a voice to people that we don't get any information from at all and we don't get their perspective. And she's sort of, even though it's, it's fictional, she's sort of giving them that. Professor Friedman always talks about the, the etymology of translation and the etymology of metaphor and how they're related. And I, I love that. That was like my favorite takeaway from the, the Odyssey class last semester. So I think every translator kind of, whether intentionally or not, imposes their own something, their own, I guess, biases or like their own style and their own way of, of speaking. Well, I think translation is interpretation. And so is, so is Margaret Atwood's Penelope Ed. Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey doesn't insert women into the narrative of the poem. It just sheds the patriarchal ways that previous, male, translators have shaped the text. By the way, we're working on an interview we did last spring with Emily Wilson, talking about the thread that links what she did with her translation to all her previous scholarship. We'll be releasing that soon. Margaret Atwood, in turn, actually imagines the perspective of the women who aren't given much voice in the text. It can seem like a totally different kind of work than a scholarly translation, but my hunch is that, upon scrutiny, any attempt to capture the perspective of people from the past, whether written by a historian, a translator, or a novelist, will involve some amount of imagination. My next guest, Michael Osterhout, a double major in Greek and Roman studies and music, decided to try his hand at something like this by reimagining the story of Ariadne as a musical. In the version of the myth that you read in your textbooks, the hero Theseus comes to Crete to rescue some Athenians from the king there, who's feeding them to the Minotaur, a half-man, half-bull monster that lives in his labyrinth. The king's daughter Ariadne falls in love with Theseus, helps him navigate the labyrinth and kill the Minotaur, and then has to flee with him for betraying her father. But on their way back to Athens, Theseus abandons her on an island. Michael's version tells the story from Ariadne's point of view, with the added twist of setting it on a college campus. And it works. Ari falls in love with Theo, who needs Ari's help, which Ari gives at the cost of betraying her controlling father. And then Theo leaves Ari when the going gets tough. That's just about where Ariadne's story ends in antiquity. But in Michael's version, it's just the first act.
oftentimes we'll think of these ancient myths and we'll say that Zeus did this and then Hera did that and that was how the story went and it was very clear that like this is the order that happened or that the Odyssey happened in this particular way. Um, Odysseus did this and then he did this and then he was stopped along the way to do this and because of the way that it was recorded and has been passed down to us, over time, that's the the correct and proper way that one's supposed to think about it. But in reality, the actual structure, the actual details of all of these um, of all these ancient stories are not so set in stone. They've changed over time. There's there's not one way that one can tell the stories or be be convinced that they actually have to go in a particular order in a particular direction or even necessarily have the have the same ending i feel i feel like what i tried to do with my musical is sort of get across the sense that ariadne's character who feels that she's been sort of put into a particular role in life that her family has set her on a particular destiny i think something that that i connect with and hopefully other people and Vassar uh, relate to, and that Ariadne's character is is struggling with that idea that she's been pigeonholed into a particular role, exploring um, issues of her own sexuality and of her own agency, all of these things that a college student deals with, and dealing with um, being betrayed, and finally, by the end, sort of coming to a better understanding of what it means to be in control of one's own life story. Or at least I, I growing up, sort of felt like that I was on a particular path, path to college, um, getting good grades in high school, doing all the extracurriculars, going on to college, going on to get the good job, following a particular straight line and straight path and feeling set into those roles. We'd like to thank that um, she finds a way throughout the course of the story to open up to the idea that um, that she might be able to have more control over her future, more control over her fate and her own choices than uh, she actually feels like she does and is able to sort of confront that um, in her family and sort of put herself first and put her own um, seeking of her own identity first. By the end of the story, she's sort of come to understand that like the ancient myths that in these performances that the stories are more flexible than we give them credit for and the uh, roles that um, that are given to uh, these particular characters and the myths aren't as well defined as uh, we'd like to we'd like to think in the second act of Michael's musical he tells a part of the story that doesn't appear in the ancient myths Ancient writers themselves did this, as when, for example, Theocritus wrote a poem from the point of view of the Cyclops from the Odyssey more than 400 years after the epic started being performed. The ancient versions of Ariadne's story usually end with her being rescued from the island where Theseus left her by Dionysus. This happens in Michael's version, but then he goes further, imagining Ari and Theo reconnecting later. Both a little older and more mature, Ari still hurt, Theo remorseful. It's not exactly a happy ending, but there's a moment of connection, of understanding, and an openness to the future, and a recognition that their journeys, either together or apart, don't end with the ancient sources, but are just beginning. The value of studying antiquity. I mean, I think there's there's so many different ways that you grow as a person just studying it. You can read the texts and you can understand the ancient world and you can apply them to the modern world. You can apply them to your own life. It's, I, I mean, 
reading the Odyssey in college is kind of transformative in a way. I mean, if you think about, I mean, okay, college, you're leaving home for the first time. You're in a new place and you're with new people and you're trying to find yourself. And that's kind of what Odysseus is doing on his journey, right? And he gets home and he's a different person. And think about like, you know, coming home from college, going back home to where it's familiar, but also you've changed. And how do you fit in? Do you fit in? Do you, you know, which place is home? (laughs) My grandmother was Danish. Her parents grew up in Copenhagen um, and she spent her childhood going back and forth. And basically when I was growing up, she kind of showed me Danish culture. I didn't speak it. You know, she was from from a, a generation that didn't want to be perceived as German in any way. And so she never taught her kids Danish. Um, and I never learned Danish. But growing up, I always had that culture and I always had a love for for Denmark in the back of my mind. I was, you know, I was pretty sheltered. I had never really traveled. Um, I went to an all-girls Catholic school and I decided that I wanted to go to Denmark and I wanted to see Copenhagen. And so I did. And for some reason, my parents let me go to Denmark by myself at 17. Um, and I got there and I was kind of struck at the familiarity of it, even though I had never been before. Um, and just kind of how much I loved that place, even though I had never been. And, you know, I got there and within... You know, within a week, I was like, wow, like I could see myself here. I could see myself in Scandinavia. I went back every summer after that. Um, once I got to Vassar, I decided my semester abroad, I would go to Copenhagen. I've kind of struggled with which one is home and where do I want to end up in the future. And it's, you know, there was a point where I thought I was going to transfer and finish undergrad over there. And I said, no, I'll stay a little longer. And then I thought, oh, I'll go to grad school over there. No, I'm going to stay here a little longer. Um, And, you know, who knows? I think that's kind of where the Odyssey opened up things for me. So when Odysseus gets home and, you know, he washes up on the beach and he's thinking about all those treasures that he's brought back from his journey. And he's really, I think, clinging to, like, the lure of travel and the lure of being out and exploring. And those, those treasures that he's brought back are kind of physical manifestations of of his time out in the world and now he's come home and he doesn't know he's home of course but still there's there's a symbolism of it that like he's wanted this for so long and he's wanted to be back at Ithaca and he gets there and he's like he doesn't know what to do he's maybe he's not happy there it's like maybe he's changed too much to go back you don't have to decide you don't have to know which one is home There's a gray area. There absolutely is. It's not going to be clear cut, this decision. And it doesn't even have to be a big decision. Like it's, it just kind of is what it is and and time will tell. The past, especially the distant past, can seem closed, finite, fossilized. But really, The past is not a fixed thing waiting for us to discover it, but a dynamic world that is transformed by what we assume or refuse to assume about it, by the way we think about it, study it, retell it. And in that process, we don't just create a past, we create ourselves.
Very special thanks to all the graduating seniors who agreed to be on the show. Allison Sugino, Jonathan Chung, Jordy Carrick, Michael Osterhout, and Haley Ryan. All of us at Vassar are excited to see what's next for each of you. The Mirror of Antiquity is produced by me, Curtis Dozier, and Yasmin Smolens, with the support of the Vassar College Department of Greek and Roman Studies and Academic Computing Services. Boehner Bailey is our recording engineer, and our logo was designed by Emma Schulte. Find a playlist for today's show and all our other episodes online at mirrorofantiquity.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>